in state. I, as the owner of the mortuary, can I see the body of my daughter? Our mother had been starved and dehydrated to death. When I was told that uh, he's no more, I said, yeah. The life is a demani tragedy. We terminated the contract in order to uh, respond to the national legislation that says we must um, decentralize mental health treatment uh, closer to communities and, and also to move away from institutionalized um, institutionalization of mental health healthcare patients so that they can be rehabilitated and integrated back into communities and be surrounded by their loved ones. Secondly, the cost per patients were increasing per annum and we could no longer be able to afford to go above 10,000 rand per patient. The decision. The decision. A moment in time that triggered untold tragedy, shock, pain, and what some consider the most horrifying health disaster in post-apartheid South Africa. In this podcast series, Eyewitness News will explore the so-called Life Esitimeni tragedy, going inside the truth to tell the stories of the victims and their families while trying to understand how politicians and civil servants failed the people they were meant to protect. The series also seeks to answer the following questions. How did we get here? Why did we get here? Will the families find closure? Can they? Yes, there was the public arbitration process. The families will be compensated. But is that where it ends? Will there be consequences for those held responsible? Will anyone go to jail? Well, let's start at the beginning, in October 2015. Dani Maslangu is the member of the Executive Council for Health in Gauteng, a senior Gauteng ANC official with years of experience in provincial government. Maslangu announces the termination of a contract between her department and Life Esitimeni. The now disgraced Maslangu is adamant her department will move over 1,700 patients from Life Esitimeni care facilities to 27 non-governmental organizations across the province. Some patients were moved back to their homes with family and others to provincial hospitals. This is Maslangu speaking to the SABC in September 2016. Including having medical um, a condition, um, medical treatment and ensuring that those NGOs are visited on a weekly basis. Even last NEC, night I was reading I a report and those over that team. I do understand all of this. We're dealing with 36 dead people. So something's gone wrong. I mean, you're making it sound like it was a smooth process and you did the best you could. The reality is you didn't do the best you could. 36 families have lost. That is why, and we want, uh, we've asked the minister for for support so that they can investigate and get to the bottom of this matter. Who's going to take responsibility for this? Once the report is finalized and it points out the responsibilities to us, whatever, we'll take responsibility. That's why I've not run away from this matter. At every step of the way where we needed to account, where we needed to explain our action, where we needed to take responsibility, I've always been there and I'll continue to do that till the last moment. If the ombudsperson come up with whatever report, which the premier is going to see, the minister is going to see, we'll take those decisions on the basis of that. But for now, let's allow the, 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 the ombudsperson to do their work and once they've completed their work, we'll deal this matter. Yes, the matter is serious and that is why we said we cannot investigate ourselves and then say everything is fine. We must subject ourselves uh, to public scrutiny, to the ombudsperson who is established, who is independent, who's not working in the housing environment, who's going to help us to give an objective view. That's why how we t- take this matter seriously. Why in the contract? To save money and deinstitutionalize. 
I find myself questioning these reasons and whether they were a complete fabrication to hide the real motive behind the moves. Let's save the cost-cutting measure for another episode in which Eyewitness News will dissect how this version of reasoning was disputed and eventually found to be nothing but a lie. Let's look at the policy for what the politicians called deinstitutionalization. It clearly states that officials are to do this slowly over several years and after developing adequate places of care and ensuring communities are accepting of psychiatric patients. Well, there was nothing slow about the process, with patients being transferred to different locations, often in large numbers, from March to June 2016. That's roughly four months. One of the provisions for the move was that old hospitals would be renovated and used to house the patients. This never happened. On the 26th of March 2016, the Gauteng Health Department's decision claimed its first victim, Deborah Pehla, who was moved to the Takalani home in Soweto just a few days before. When she arrived there, she lived only for three days there. The fourth day she died. I asked the owner of the mortuary, can I see the body of my daughter? And then they brought her and then they said to us, come and see her, there she is. She was on a stretcher on the floor. Counselor, I was so shocked. I nearly died. When I see my daughter lying there, a face full of blood. It wasn't drops of blood from her nose. It was rivers. Details of Deborah's slow, agonizing death were revealed when Section 27 lawyer Adila Hassim read out her autopsy results, leaving many at the arbitration hearing shaken and angry. Paragraph Roman numeral 5 notes the cause of death. And it says that the cause of death was determined to be consistent with asphyxia due to aspiration of blood. Yes, in simple language, she drowned in her own blood. Um, but if we turn to page 3534, the paragraph um, of this post-mortem report that's headed stomach and contents describes the findings of the pathologist. And it says, as far as the stomach goes, it contains two bottled-up plastics which are a size of a fist. Several pieces of brown papers are found in the stomach. As Deborah Pesha was eating brown paper and plastic to try and stay alive, the department happened to be taken to court in a bid to stop the transfer of 54 people to Dagalani. The department argued the patients had been assessed and were no longer in need of professional care and Dagalani was safe. On March the 15th, the court ruled that the department could transfer the patients. Later, it was revealed the patients sent to Dagalani were actually diagnosed as having severe intellectual disability and being entirely dependent on others for care. The department had misled the court and allowed the transfer of patients to a facility that was not able to care for them. So, did anyone try to stop the department? The answer to this is yes. 
Families, civil society organizations and professional associations all tried desperately to convince the department it was placing patients in danger by moving them to places that could not give them the care they required. They were even forced to take the department to court twice. One of these organizations was the South African Depression and Anxiety Group. Cassie Chambers is SADEX Operations Director. Cassie, you were there on the 15th of March 2016 when the judge said the department was entitled to move these patients. How did you feel at this point, knowing that the moves had already started, people were already dying, and knowing that the witnesses for the department under oath lied to the court? It was incredibly frustrating and really difficult because we'd already been working on the SMNE struggle for over six months and it was the second time that we had gone to court because we had felt so strongly that this was something terrible was happening and we we couldn't stop it and we were hoping that the law could help us and prevent the deaths from happening and unfortunately we were let down um, and it was incredibly frustrating and very disheartening. You know, we had worked tirelessly to fight for patients and to help and support family members and here we were let down by people promising and, and saying that everything was fine when we knew in practice that that wasn't the case. Even in that court case, we already knew that patients were being prepared to move. And we were just really concerned and really worried. And then, of course, after that court case, the floodgates opened. And then more patients were moved incredibly quickly and fast and haphazardly. And that was only the start of the disaster. Mm, mm. Now, Cassie, in June 2015, the South African Society of Psychiatrists wrote to the former MEC about the risks. These people are professionals in the field, specializing in mental health care. They warned the closure was premature and in contradiction of the policy. They predicted the negative outcomes. They were ignored. Their predictions were unfortunately proven right. You all walked this painful journey with the families. Do you feel, did you at the time rather, feel hopeless that even the courts were not hearing you? I think at that time in March, yes, it was very difficult, um, feeling like we could all see this. It wasn't just SADAG. You know, this was the first time that an organization at SADAG in its whole 20-plus years of functioning had actually taken the government to court. Um, so it was a really big deal for us. And then to be let down, we were really out of options as to what to do. And the most frustrating thing is that we as an organization, we had already partnered with organizations like SASOP and the SA Federation for Mental Health and the Family Committee and Section 27. So we had all these organizations who could see what could happen and the dangers. And having to sit back and, and wait for these crises to happen and, and have it catchy, that was the most difficult part. We were going against everything in ourselves that we're saying that something was wrong, something should be done. So I think looking after the fact, after March, and, and how many months we had been working on it, it was incredibly difficult to just sit back now and, and wait for these tragedies to happen. And we were helpless. It's been over two years now since Deborah Pesla passed away. Her family, especially her mother, is not really coping. I've also had a sit-down with Section 27 lawyer Sasha Stevenson. She has given me an update on Zimbi Pesla, whose health is deteriorating as she still battles to come to terms with her daughter's death. Talking about... Um Deborah's mom and her family, I know that the mom is not well at the mm. moment. Um, you know, something like this, you know, how, how is she doing? I mean, I can imagine you cannot just move on because really you don't have, clo- you have money, mm. but you don't have, you don't have closure. You don't know what happened. You're feeling guilty, all of these things that she's going through mm. and now being hospitalized recently. 
does it have anything to do with this? Is it like stress from what she's been through? I, I don't know the details and I, I wouldn't want to um, speculate, but I, I think it is, um, it's inevitably going to be so difficult for a woman who loses a child, particularly in these, these circumstances, you know, and the, the, the circumstances were described um, by Deborah's mum and in particular the uh, post-mortem report and um, the experience of Maria having gone into Takalani and being taken to the, the room in which Deborah died and it was, she described it as a small storeroom with filing cabinets and um, dust and dirt and paper files and not the kind of place that any mother would want her child to be, let alone for her child to die there alone, just days after having been moved into that facility. Just six months after Deborah Pesha's death, Katani Maslangu revealed she wasn't the only former Life Asitimeni patient who had died since the termination of the deal. Speaking in the Gauteng Legislature in September 2016, she announced that 36 people had died. After this announcement, several civil society organizations and the families of many of the people again marched to Maslangu's Johannesburg offices, pleading with her to reverse her decision as it was claiming too many lives. The families of 37 psychiatric patients who died after being transferred from Life Healthcare Sidemeni are calling for Gauteng Health MEC Gredani Matlangu to step down or Premier David Makura to fire her. The patients died after being transferred to various NGOs across the province earlier this year after the Provincial Health Department terminated its contract with Isidimeni. The families of those who died and those who are residing at these NGOs demonstrated outside Matlangu's offices in the Joburg CBD today. Masakoratlaka was there. MEC Tadani Matlangu was not available to accept a memorandum from the families gathered here today and after demanding that they specifically wanted to see her, the group agreed to hand it over to the head of department. Pastor Joe Mabui's son is among those who died. He says Matlangu can avoid giving his family closure, but she can never avoid answering to God. Really, Matlangu, she's guilty even before the throne of God. And I don't know whether God will forgive it. Dr. Asalam Dasu of the South African Health Workers Congress says Matlangu was never the right appointment as health MEC in the first place. I am a doctor. Kairani Matlangu is not a doctor. She says she inspected the facilities. What does she know? The families have demanded to meet with Matlangu face to face. Masakho Rataha, Eyewitness News, Johannesburg CBD. So you'll remember, I said Matlangu told the legislature an official house of the state, a house which has oversight over her department, that 36 people had died by the end of September. Yet, five months later, it came to light that the death toll at that time was in fact 77. So, did the department actually know what they were doing? How could they get the number and so many other things on their own project wrong? Was Maslangu lied to? More importantly, did she lie to the legislature and the nation? As we know, government's decision led to the deaths of at least 144 psychiatric patients. Why do I use the term at least? Well, that's because we still don't know exactly what happened to all the patients. Some of them have still not been accounted for. While some died outside the period of the arbitration's focus, March to September 2016, it's believed more people died both before and after this period. 
They include Deborah Pesla, Charity Razozo, Billy Mabuwe, Virginia Mahpela, Busisiwe Chabalala, Maureen Kunjua, Christopher Makhoba, Joseph Kumete, Yaku Stolls, Masuiti Masumbuka, and many others. This is an EWN podcast, written and produced by Masekho Rashaka, Sheldon Marais, and Peter Tarone.